Hello, and welcome to Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. I'm your host, Inman Narrowin, and today we're just going to get into it. We have a short story by Caleb Wexler called First Tracks. It's a fun little slice of life story set post-collapse, and it's just delightful. Stick around afterwards for an interview with Caleb. The word of the month this month is the surprising origins of a common fear. And as always, our feature is read by the wonderful Bee Flowers. First Tracks by Caleb Wexler. Narrated by Bee Flowers and published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. Quote, I don't know what it is, what it was, or whether it not less a question of ruins than the indestructible chaos of timeless things. I listen, and the voice is of a world collapsing endlessly, a frozen world, under a faint untroubled sky, enough to see by, yes, and frozen too. Samuel Beckett, Malloy. The alarm blared, and Kate's hand darted out for a gun that wasn't there. It had been three years since she'd lived on the road, and two years since she had stopped sleeping with a handgun in easy reach. But old habits, you know? Crossing the country, there had been lots of reasons to wake up easily and be ready to fight when you did. Gangs of scavengers, fascist militias, or other climate refugees who'd run out of supplies and gotten desperate. She silenced the alarm quickly before it woke up either of the partners she shared the squatted jet with. Normally, she'd share the bed with Carter and Bug, but she had to be up early today, so she'd opted for a sleeping bag on the cabin floor. When Bug was out, nothing in the world could wake them, but Carter was a light sleeper, and he and Bug looked too beautiful sleeping together for her to risk waking him. She dressed as quietly as she could and tried to avoid looking at Carter's mirror. Of the three of them, he took the most pleasure in putting together elaborate outfits and spending inordinate amounts of time on elaborate makeup. He had a beautiful face, and he knew exactly how to turn it into a work of art that never failed to set Kate's heart racing. She was more practical in her dress, and lately had wanted as little to do with her reflection as possible. This far out in the mountains, it was hard to get a reliable source of hormones, and her dysphoria had been hitting hard lately. It had been years since landslides had damaged the road through Glenwood Canyon beyond anything people these days could repair, so she'd have to stretch what she had until the snow melted on the mountain passes and hope she got lucky with one of the caravans coming from Denver. In the meantime, there was no chance anyone around here would misgender her, but still, it sucked. The jet wasn't as comfortable as a room in the Jerome, but she liked the privacy it gave her. She didn't have to worry as much about loud music and thin walls, and it felt less claustrophobic than a hotel room, less hemmed in, less like a cell in a beehive. Plus, there was something satisfying about taking something that had probably belonged to a billionaire and making it hers. She liked to imagine it had belonged to a real asshole, like a coach or something. Although someone told her the coach's vacations just a little further west, out by Redstone, before someone mined their airstrip. 
if you're going to work so hard to kill the earth, you should really have better security than a shallow, slow-moving river on the edge of your property. Either way, she'd like to think it'd be someone who'd be really pissed that it was now home to a gay anarchist and her partners. Besides, once she and Carter had gutted most of the seats and furniture, there was a lot more space, although they kept the minibar. Their first summer, they'd knocked out a couple windows, duct-taped some AC units in place, wired them to the solar panels they'd bolted on the roof, and then, well, it was livable, and they were usually too busy during the heat of the day to sit at home. It was a little cramped for everyone to live there, but it was plenty big for game nights. Turns out, D&D works just as well after the collapse of civilization, and old-school pen-and-pencil gamers couldn't get enough of telling ex-console and PC partisans, I told you so. It was one of Bug's more annoying traits, but after they came to town with a handful of Pathfinder and 5e books, as well as a sackful of dice they'd scavenged, and saved the Airportians from an eternity of poker and gin rummy, Kate couldn't hold it against them. It'd be nice to live somewhere where the whole polycule sleeping together wouldn't mean a night of waking up to elbows in her face, but Amelie and Jax liked the space that living next door, next jet, gave them anyways. Kate zipped up her fleece and walked as quietly as she could to the cabin door. She stepped outside and her breath misted in the morning air. A decade or so ago, it'd be below zero this time of day and year, but as it was, Kate only shivered slightly under a couple layers. She walked up the half-assed two-by-four stairs to Jackson and Amelie's door and wished for the umpteenth time that Jax had let her make them less shaky, but every time Kate suggested it, Jax just said, Hey, they work, don't they? I'm not going to lose butch points by having someone else do it for me. Kate rolled her eyes just thinking about it. She didn't have to knock on the door. The squeaking steps were loud enough, and Amelie opened the front door. "'Morning, sweetheart,' she said, handing Kate a steaming mug of tea. "'Morning,' Kate said, with a peck on Amelie's cheek. "'You're the best,' she added, taking the tea. "'I know,' Amelie replied with a smirk. "'If all it takes is a cup of tea, why am I getting up at the ass-crack of dawn?' Jax finished tightening her boots while her own mug of tea cooled next to her. Because you love me, and because it's your first winter in Aspen. So why isn't Amelie going? There was no way Jax was going to be up this early and not gripe about it the whole way out the door. Because, babe, Amelie replied, I wasn't even a skier back when there were real seasons. Plus, you were the one going on about how much you missed real winners the entire time we were in Arizona. Okay, but why are we going all the way into town to ski when we already live at the base of a mountain? Don't be a baby. It's only a couple miles. Buttermilk is, like, fine, but Highlands is Highlands. This was actually a matter of some debate. Lots of people had ideas for what to call the mountain. Some of the more committed radicals suggested renaming mountains for their revolutionary heroes, instead of keeping names that they saw as irredeemably tied to the ski resort's commercialization of nature, and the legacy of colonization and capitalist exploitation of nature. Last Kate heard, they had renamed Snowmass, Buttermilk, Highlands, and Ajax to Goldman Peak, Bookchin Mountain, Mount Ojalan, 
and Mount Angela Davis, respectively. The commune on Owl Farm called them Hunter Thompson Mountain, Duke Hill, Mount Gonzo, and Freak Peak, but after their third breakfast whiskey, they could never keep straight which was which. The community of ski bums and former lifties in the old Snowmass Village had much cruder names that Bug loved, and Amelie thought were stupid and immature. There wasn't any kind of authority or landowner to give them official names anymore, so mostly people just called them whatever they wanted. The old names had a way of sticking around, though. They were in the names Kate had known them by as a little kid, and she was pretty sure they'd always be Snowmass, Buttermilk, Highlands, and Ajax to her. The one thing everyone agreed on was not to call them the Four Mountains. It didn't matter what camp you were in, fuck the ski company for turning mountains into private property. Besides, that's where the biggest party will be. This was enough of a motivator to sway Jax in Kate's favor. Kate and Jax walked into a departure terminal where a small group was already forming. Morning, Kate. Hey, Jax. She rope you into hiking the bowl this year? Juniper grinned through her beard. Morning, June. Yeah, somehow she talked me into it. Juniper laughed. Yeah, she does it to all of you. She even got Bug to go last year. Bug got up this early? On purpose? Jax gave Kate a surprised look. Well, it took a year of asking, and we almost missed breakfast. Carter? Who do you think took me the first time? So why isn't he here? Because he's lazy, Kate laughed. It was fun for him to show off as the rugged mountain man when we started dating, but honestly, he'd rather sleep in with Bug. Relatable, Jack said, thinking about how much warmer it was under the covers with Amelie. So, breakfast? Juniper asked. The three of them ambled over to the counter where a pot of oatmeal had been set out. Shelves that used to be filled with cheap knickknacks, refrigerator magnets, and shot glasses printed with a state flag now held plates, bowls, and assortments of sauces and seasonings either made locally or traded from the caravans. Conversations were subdued, while warm oatmeal woke everyone from their pre-dawn stupor, and the air hummed with collective excitement. "'Are you coming too?' Jax asked. "'No, Snowmass.' Juniper looked wistful. "'There aren't enough days in the season for me to waste them anywhere else.' "'Waste?' Kate said indignantly. "'It's the best mountain, and the biggest, and you know it. "'Size isn't everything. You should know that.' "'Ha ha ha,' Jupiter said sarcastically.' but with a wry smile. Jax got the sense that this was an old argument that they kept up for the sport of it. Gradually, everyone got up to wash their dishes and shuffled off to the stables. Kate and Jax made small talk with their neighbors while they finished tightening down saddles and tying on skis. Horses still felt like a luxury to Jax. On the road, she and Amelie had mostly hiked where they could or barted rides where they couldn't. Most of the space around here had been ranch land, though, and even before the collapse, people had kept horses. Most of them had been expensive pets for the children of the rich or ways to flaunt wealth. Now, they were a necessity for moving people and sharing resources. At least they didn't mind the shorter winters. Lots more time and space for them to graze. 
As they rode out of the airport parking lot, Kate looked up across the valley up to Starwood. It was mostly obscured by the scars of the last few wildfire seasons. Here and there, mansions in various stages of damage and decay poked through. It's a long way from LA to Denver, floated through her head. Some of the mansions were still intact enough to be used as squats by folks who preferred to think of themselves as roughing it, or who liked the punk house squalor. Most were the blackened tatters and charcoal ruins of capitalist history. It's a long time to hang in the sky, came the lyrics, and a longer time to scavenge, hitchhike, and trek, she thought. Jax and Amelie didn't talk much about their time on the road. They didn't have to. A lot of places were pretty shit right now, but the road was one of the worst. At least in towns and squats, there's a sense of here that people can unite around. Here creates us, and too often, a them. But on the road, between here's, there's pretty much only them. It's where people feel the least secure, the most desperate. Still, enough people feel the need to travel. Maybe they prefer, even now, not being tied down anywhere. Or, like the caravans, they found a niche for themselves moving goods between settlements. When things got bad, Jax had the bad luck to be in a part of California that slid pretty quickly into eco-fascism. She figured there was more a way to go if she went east. She met Amelie somewhere along the way, and as they got closer to the Rockies, they heard rumors that things might not be too bad in the Roaring Fork Valley, and they decided to see for themselves. Some folks quietly split off to head up a back road to Snowmass. Juniper looked back and waved at Kate and Jax before heading off to her own communication with the mountains. Soon they reached the roundabout where they forked uphill. Borders are bullshit, and no borders were used as pretense for as much violence as state borders, but Kate remembered how this roundabout, the circle, was another kind of border. The 1% would gleefully brag that they never went past the circle into the realm of the merely upper class. They even made sure that kids from too far outside the circle legally couldn't go to the same public school as their kids. Now, it was just a part of the road, with rusted cars gathering weeds along its circumference. Kate wasn't sure at first why she kept moving. The first few places she found herself were mostly folks desperate to hang on to what they had. Everyone was sure that the world had ended, and all that was left was to draw out their own deaths as long as they could. Kate thought it was a lot of pessimistic bullshit. She didn't have much love for how things were before, and she wanted somewhere where she could build something new, not just hang on to what was left. She'd stayed in one town for a while, got serious with someone, then got tired again. She'd tried to convince them to come with her. They'd tried to convince her to stay. She'd thought they were a fool to think there was nothing better than to stay where they were. They'd thought she was a fool to imagine that life might be slightly less horrible a little further on. So she had left alone. And some places were better, and some places weren't. And she kept hoping to find somewhere better. Eventually, she decided if she was going to end up hanging on to a precarious existence, she might as well do it somewhere she liked. So she'd gone back to the valley she grew up in and found it better than she'd left it. 
Snow crunched under their horses' hooves as they trotted into the plaza at the base of the mountain. The first few tents were being set up for the winter festival with streamers and strings of cloths tied between them like Tibetan prayer flags. Holidays didn't mean quite the same thing that they used to. When Kate was growing up, a holiday was one of the few days that she didn't have to go to work or was the center of a break from school. Now there was no mandate to work or go to school, so now you could just take a break whenever you needed one. Sure, if you made a habit of not working, folks might take issue with it and call you out, or feel less inclined to share resources and labor. It's called mutual aid for a reason. But if you had a bad week or you were mourning and didn't show up for a while, there were no bosses to fire you and no landlords to evict you. It wasn't perfect. In theory, there were plenty of ways that people could work the system and freeload off everyone else's hard work. In theory, it was a slapdash set of solutions jerry-rigged together as problems cropped up, and it was full of holes and oversights. In practice, though, they got by. Kate was pretty sure that people were basically decent when they weren't desperate or starving, and so far, the folks in various confederated squats, communes, co-ops, villages, and townships up and down the valley hadn't disappointed her. Holidays now weren't the exclusive time that everyone got to take off work. They were the time everyone chose to take off work simultaneously or refocus their work around the festivals. It made it more fun somehow. Kate didn't worry about getting enough rest to be able to go back to work after. She just focused on having fun with her community, skiing, and taking in what little winter there still was these days. That wasn't the only difference in this holiday. People used to celebrate the solstice because it was the turning point between nights getting longer and colder and days getting longer and warmer. It was the time when people had hope that they'd made it through to the end of the long, dark season. They still had something like that for the summer solstice, but now they celebrated winter for itself. There weren't a lot of days in a year where they still got a nice, heavy snow and it usually didn't fall on the solstice, so they celebrated the winter whenever it did come. They treated the snow like a guest of honor and celebrated all through the day. Yesterday had been filled with howling winds and a fierce blizzard. Today would be bluebird skies and festivals at the bases of all four ski areas. They tied their horses up near a maroon-dyed tent where they lingered long enough to drink steaming cups of hot chocolate from ceramic mugs, Festivals these days didn't leave behind the same mess of styrofoam and plastics that parties like X Games had. Then they took their skis from their horses, strapped synthetic skins onto the bottoms, traded riding boots for AT boots, and started up the hill. They reached the top of the ski lift as the first rays of sunlight grazed the tops of maroon bells. Sunrise was coming soon, and they still had a good 40 minutes to the top of the bowl. It would have been quicker and easier if the lifts were still running, but they couldn't justify that expenditure of power on a luxury, even during a festival. The draw from the town's solar farm didn't have that kind of excess, and even if they had the fuel, none of them would have felt justified running the diesel generators for the convenience. Besides, Kate had come to appreciate putting in the work of skinning up the mountain, Putting in that much work and sweat made it feel more like a ritual for her. It helped make the morning feel spiritual, almost religious. 
When some para-alpine skiers had figured out how to train horses to tow them uphill and trot down after them, that had put the final nail in the coffin of any talks to power up the lifts, and now the chairs swung empty on rusting cables. They all stopped for a breather on the plateau, where people used to double-check bindings, strap into snowboards, or stop by the warming hut before skiing back down. Some people treated blisters, rubbed sore calves, or adjusted the number of layers they wore. Everyone drank from bottles or backpack reservoirs. Most were too winded to talk much. Do you think we'll make it up before sunrise? Jax asked. No, not this time, Kate said. Resigned, but still excited. Sorry, hun. It'll probably catch us about halfway up. It'll still be a hell of a view. Kate nodded her agreement. From here, there were no more use for skins, so they peeled them off their skis and packed them away. They had a short downhill to ski and enjoyed letting gravity do the work for a moment, before it was time to dismount, strap skis to packs, and take the final leg of their trip on foot. Like Kate had guessed, they were on a peak about halfway to the summit, trying to catch their breath, when the sun finished cresting the horizon. Goddamn beautiful, Jax breathed. Kate wished she had something poetic to say, a bit of verse stored away that she could pull out. All she mustered was a breathless, yeah. Someone started humming Rocky Mountain High. It was appropriate, if cheesy. There was a corona of reds and oranges around the sun as it came over the eastern peaks. It was gorgeous, but they all knew it meant wildfires on the front range. Only a sky full of ash could refract the sunrise so beautifully. Kate felt a twang of guilt. It didn't seem quite right to get so much beauty out of something that was burning habitats and homes on the other side of the Rockies. Kate set the guilt aside. There was nothing she could do about those fires, and mourning the world before could only get you so far. That's part of what these ski days were about, bringing every bit of beauty and joy from the world as it is that they can. And then, when the celebrations are done, getting back to work, trying to make it a bit better. So she scooted closer to Jax and pulled her into a kiss, while the ash-tinted air bathed them in fiery hues. From then, it was a steady march up to the summit. When they reached it, no one said anything. They set down packs, stretched sore muscles, and turned in slow circles to take in the panorama. Under the unbroken blue dome of the firmament, they understood why mountaintops were depicted as homes of the gods. All around them, snow-capped peaks glittered under the morning sun. White blankets covered mine tailings and burn scars, and in the morning's quiet, the world felt newborn. Maroon bells and Pyramid Peak glittered to the southwest like crystal leviathans, as did other uncounted, unnamed peaks besides. Jax was the first to break the silence. Thank you, she whispered, for sharing this with me. Kate just smiled and kissed her again. Every sport has its share of goofy slang. The skiers Kate knew growing up had a perfect word for days like this. Church. They mounted skis and fastened packs in silence. They lined up along the ridge, and then one by one they dropped into the bowl, cutting the untouched powder field with their skis and the morning air with their whoops, hollers, and shouts of pure animal 
joy. Hello, and welcome to the show. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, we just listened to your story, First Tracks. Um, and yeah, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, and um, I, what, what, do you, what do you do in the world? Stuff like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be on. Um, so my name's Caleb. Uh, pronouns are they, them, or any. Um, I'm, I'm a bookseller. I'm uh, a treasurer for a housing cooperative um, and a you know, tabletop GM um, and, you know, getting uh, more into, into writing in a way that like, you know, writing prose, not just uh, writing, you know, one shots and, and little campaigns for my friends, writing stuff that, you know, uh, exists after the end of a session. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's, that's awesome. Not to immediately get into tabletop nerd land. Um, but it's, I feel like it's always funny as the, as the GM or like the dungeon master to, I feel like need to have these like very separate, like, okay, I have like a cool idea that I absolutely know isn't gonna, how something's going to play out in a game because games are not novels. Um, and just have these like funny little like separations of like, I have this story or this narrative in my head and then there's whatever the players end up doing. But totally. I mean, my, my notes are always full of, you know, character backstories and plot threads that, you know, don't come up, but don't, don't need to. They're kind of, they're there for fun and for, you know, flavor if, if the story goes there. Um, and that's, I mean, that's part of the fun of, of jamming is like letting that kind of emerge organically. And then that's also the fun of writing prose is getting to actually, you know, dive into the places where I want to dive in. Yeah. Yeah. The first, the first question I usually like to ask people, even though we just listened to your story, I'm wondering if you could kind of recap what we just listened to, like in, in your own words and like whatever simplification or like hyper nuance that you want to, um, that you want to tell us about. Yeah. So first tracks is, you know, story of kind of one of the last good ski days in a sort of like near to mid ish future where, you know, because of climate change, there's not a lot of winter days in the way that, you know, kind of we're used to winter being, or that, you know, we maybe already are starting to, uh, remember winter being uh, in the past uh which you know isn't people's probably biggest fear or priority with um climate change and you know it's, it's not necessarily one that has the same kind of like cost in in human lives and like quality of life but um so the story is set in the area where i grew up and it is something that you know when you know skiing is a really big part of how you you know, spend your time in the outdoors, how you relate to nature, uh, that you notice when those things change, right? And like, I certainly noticed uh, winters changing a lot from when I was uh, a little kid to, you know, now, or at least to, you know, when I moved out of Colorado. And um, so the, the plot of the story is just, it, you know, now that there are maybe one or two good w snowy winter days, when they happen, they are this kind of spontaneous um, celebration and festival for this community. And the, the plot is just, it's uh, the protagonist, Kate, taking her girlfriend, Jax, out for, you know, the, a, one really good ski day of the year to just 
celebrate this kind of last bit of winter, celebrate this really um, fleeting moment of beauty and respite in a world as it changes. Um, and also, you know, kind of looking at how like as, as the world changes and as parts of it get worse and harder to live in, there are still these moments of beauty in these communities that we will still be able to build and hold on to and find. And that, that's something that I really enjoyed about um, the story. Um, we, like, I, I feel like in my in my own personal life, like, encounter a lot of, um, you know, like, a, apocalypse media, so to speak. Um, and there is usually within that genre a lot of, like, focus on the transitionary period between these two worlds um, because, you know, it's like this like high conflict time. There's a lot of, there can be a lot of drama. There can be a lot of action and we, you know, we, we all do have our own like apocalypse fantasies probably about like how that transitionary period works. Um, But I really appreciate that this, this story is kind of set like what seems like after a lot of the conflict of that transition um, because it's like, it, it, yeah, it's just, it's just like a nice moment. It's like, a would, would you define this as like a slice of life, like narrative? I think that maybe yeah, that's definitely. a word that only gets used in anime. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it definitely fits here. Right. I mean, I, I, I think of it as a slice of life. Um, and that's part of the intention here, right. Is that this isn't a story of like, uh, some, you know, big conflict for like the heart of the world or whatever it is just um yeah it is just like a look at the lives of people living in a world that is that is changed that is scarred um you know it, and it, like it is you know in the least in the the setting of the story it is a little bit more settled but there is i think at least as i'm thinking of the kind of world that it's situated in still a lot of transition and conflict right like i think uh, jacks and amelie are newer to this valley um they're still carrying a lot of that you know trauma of like the other places that they've come from and through and you know i mean the first thing we we open with is kate reaching waking up and reaching for a gun because it's still not that long since you know she was um in a much more kind of contingent or precarious position but it is kind of just this moment of of yeah it is just this you know slice of life that like even in the midst of whatever turmoil is is happening uh in the broader social context or the broader like uh, you know, world uh, that there is, yeah, just this kind of slice of life, this moment where things are still good. I think you could situate this somewhere within like an apocalypse story, but you know, I don't kind of part of the idea here is that, you know, apocalypse and, you know, maybe on the other scale side of the scale, utopia, neither of those are absolutes that you still have this sort of like partial utopia within an apocalypse. And, and, you know, that these, the world is never just one thing, right? Like even as the world is going to shit, we're still going to have community and we're still going to be taking care of each other. Yeah. And that's super, that's, and that's super apparent in, in this story that it's just, yeah, just, just a nice, a nice little moment in these, in these people's lives. And it's like, like reading it, especially like these like kind of like slice of life narratives in, um, like apocalypse media or within like speculative or like science fiction, whatever, whatever words that we want to use. Um, I do always, I have the tendency to wonder. Um, and you know, I rarely get to ask the author actually. So it's like, 
just gonna just gonna do that even even though I feel like it's potentially a little potentially a little annoying but like what was how how did you craft the story like how like what what did it start as and do you know what the transitionary period between like whatever world came before and like this moment in time are and sorry that's like three questions but answer any of them or none of them or yeah um so I guess to begin with like, you know, what the the process of, of writing this story was. So when I wrote this, I was coming off of uh, a period of like several months of working on a master's thesis writing about the solar punk genre uh, slash movement, um, which is, you know, at its core, like a very hopeful genre. It's often like a very, um, at least in the solar punk that I really enjoy, often like a pretty anarchistic uh, genre. And sometimes it is, you know, like a much more like far future thing where things have settled a lot more into this kind of like green, ecological, happy future. Um, and sometimes it is a lot more uh, near future or like near near to the present where things are a lot more contentious, where there is still like a big struggle for um, what the world is going to become. And I just wanted to write something kind of situated in there uh, of this kind of hopeful idea of what the world could be and not hopeful in a way that, you know, ignores um, what is happening, what's going to continue to happen, you know, especially climate change, um, you know, rising like right wing ultra nationalism, fascism and so on. Uh, but that still finds hope within uh, that kind of, this kind of, you know, growing reality. And also it was, I mean, it was written for a class and, or the, the very first version of this was written for a class. So it was like, which was a really good motivator to like, I have a hard deadline that this has to be written by. Um, but you know, I was writing it uh, very with, with that, that. So that was all kind of what was in my mind was, um, and the, the prompt for the class was like, write about a place, you know, write about a, how a relationship to a place can be transformed. That was uh, kind of all what was going on when I wrote about taking this place where I grew up, this place that I, you know, have a very like you know intimate relationship to, or at least that I grew up adjacent to. But imagine what a transformed relationship would imagine what like a kind of hopeful, transformative relationship to um, to this valley, to that area could be. And you know that's that's something that I also I have to like been thinking about for a long time because i so i grew up about uh, so this story is set in kind of and around uh snowmass and aspen colorado which are both uh, like incredibly wealthy areas and i grew up about 30 40 minutes outside of that and would commute in for work and would be looking at these you know private jets um all parked at the aspen airport looking at these mansions and really uh, fancy hotels and all that and thinking like what else could these be um Right, like how many families could you fit in just one of these mansions? Uh, you know, you just like what we have all of these resources stockpiled in this one, or we, you know, not we, like they have all these resources stockpiled in this one area. Like, what else could this be? Because this is, a, it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful place. Uh, I love the mountains. I love the the forests and the mountains in winter and all of that. And it's it's a really great place to be. And but what, but it is increasingly uh, a place just for like the ultra rich and you know i've spent a lot of time thinking about like what if that wasn't the case um so with the question of like how do you transform a relationship to place that was uh you know how i got started on this story 
you know, I wanted to, I wanted to actually think seriously about like what, well, what else could it be, right? Like not just critiquing what is, but trying to imagine what the alternative to that would be. And then, um, as far as like what this world is transitioning from, uh, I actually kept it sort of intentionally vague because I didn't have a really good idea. Um, I think the, you know, in the broad strokes, what it is, is sort of a collapse of, the you know political order a collapse of kind of the you, you know ubiquitous power of the u.s state and then you know as as a result of various social pressures um you know the increasing like political divide uh as you know the far right becomes more powerful and more emboldened um and also as climate change you know introduces a series of um interwoven and, and interacting crises that the state is increasingly unable to respond to. Um, you know, beyond that, I don't have like, uh, as clear of like a world built, um, for that of like, you know, who is in power in which areas. Uh, I think I make references to like, you know, certain areas maybe being more controlled by fascist militias. Um, I can't remember if I, I know I said like parts of California. I don't remember whether I said Utah was particularly bad or if it was Nevada. And, you know, that's sort of maybe like the broad strokes of, you know, what's been going on in this world. And then in, in the midst of that is also a lot of people trying to find ways to keep going and ways to keep, you know, different scales of community going. Like if it, maybe it's just them and a couple friends or them and a couple families. But, um, you know, I think I, I talk about Kate moving between different like, enclaves of different you know sizes or you know qualities of life um there are trader caravans that i reference kind of moving between these settlements um and you know probably folks who just live on the on the road and you know prey on other people who are in these more kind of transient positions and are is able to you know defend themselves or are maybe more isolated and alone um but that's a that's about as much as i had sketched that out and yeah, sorry, I feel like it's like almost a funny thing to like ask people to like, what's the prequel? What is like, you know, like in, in people's like stories, but um, I, the thing that I like about a story like this is that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to matter like what, how that transition occurred. And we, we all have an idea about like what those things can look like and it's 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 a very unnecessary thing for the story i think it's also a little bit uh for the characters as well it's a little bit unnecessary like i don't think that you know kate knows all of what jacks and amelie went through um and vice versa i think i think for a lot of them there are probably parts of how they got here that they keep to themselves that they are not um ready or able to share um you know i I think there are a lot of parts of this world that are very hard and difficult places to be in. And that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not, not all of where they came from or how they got here matters to each other. It's about kind of being in this place together. And so, yeah. So I think like, not only does, does the reader not know all of that and not, you know, obviously I, as the author don't know all of that, but I think it's also, you know, for the characters themselves, wouldn't be important to know all of that. And I like the, I like the kind of room that there is within like speculative narrative to really uh, like a, sorry, like not like 
in like a non-conflictually transitionary speculative fiction. I don't really, I don't know if there's a term for what I'm trying to say, um, but there's so much room to build a world through like having vagueness around like how the world that you're in came to be or having a reader be like somewhat unfamiliar with the world where it's like, yeah, you can like, you can mention, you can mention caravans, you can mention um, things happening in California and it's wild how little details planted can like really build out or flesh out like the, like an entire world beyond like what you're seeing. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, um, uh, not, not to, not to like rip on Ursula Le Guin, like I love Ursula Le Guin. Um, and I also love Samuel Delaney who is a controversial person. I feel like, um, but you know, he wrote this controversial book. Um, I don't have you ever read Trouble on Triton? I haven't. Um, I do remember a, a little bit of a discussion of Trouble on Triton and uh, the Dispossessed uh, on a previous episode of this podcast, though. Oh, okay, cool. I'm gonna not repeat because I probably said the same exact thing. So I'm just gonna like not repeat that. Well, here's the thing. My first reaction when I heard you all talking about that was, I want to join in this conversation. So <laughs> okay, feel great. free. Wonderful. Let's talk about it then. Yeah. So it's like I obviously have brought up this idea before. I'm not boring. I have more thoughts. Uh, yeah. So Samuel Delaney kind of like ripped on Ursula Guin and the the dispossessed being like. I feel like I could create a better version of an anarchist utopia in the background of a story about someone having failed romantic relationships. <laughs> and that's what Trouble on Triton is. It's like a really interesting sketch of like an anarchist utopia and then a very controversial character making really bad relationship decisions. <laughs> I'm gonna have to read that. Um, well, so I mean, the dispossessed was also like a pretty big uh, inspiration for this. Uh, so, sorry, I don't know if you can see it on screen. I I, I have the map of Anaris tattooed on my arm because uh, the dispossessed is flaws and all my favorite book. But uh, yeah, I, I like. But an important part of the dispossessed is that parts of Anaris suck. Um, uh-huh. Like, there's a, a really big chunk of that book is there being like a huge like a terrible drought and like tons of people are dying and you know shevik has to work in like i think it's like an agricultural facility or something but he's like doing this like awful bureaucratic task where he's like allocating rations and making decisions about you know who's gonna die and like um it's not like utopia in like a you know pure and finished sense right like the subtitle of the book is an ambiguous utopia um but like even on a world that is really harsh and difficult to live on, they are still building a community where for the most part, they're able to take care of each other and live uh, in a way that, you know, challenges hierarchies. And obviously a big part of that book is like the places where they fail to do that and where these hierarchies still crop up. And, you know, I'm sure if I, I wrote a story that took, spent more time in this valley, there would be similar problems. And I, you know, there's like, you know, I, there would probably be factionalisms and, and things like that. But like, I think the point being that like, you know, uh, 
there's this beautiful contrast between Urus, which is this like very rich, lush world where everything is artificially scarce, and Anaris, where everything is really scarce, and yet they still share what is there. Um, and that was <laughs> a big, that was a really important feature for the for this story is that like yeah, the world sucks. Climate change is destroying a lot of things. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how to live and take care of each other in that. Um, yeah. But I, I do, I do really want to read trouble on Triton cause I am, you know, it, it, your description of it, it, it sounds really interesting. And I want to, you know, and I'm, I'm interested to see what like the critiques of Le Guin's kind of anarchist society is there. But yeah, when you guys were talking about it on, uh, that other episode, I was like, I gotta, I want to jump in here and just be like, j- be the Le Guin defender. <laughs> yeah sorry sorry to be fair i i adore ursula Le Guin, like and i i love the dispossessed it was an important book and um and you know like obviously there's critiques of things like there's critiques of all things but yeah i i, I love it and i yeah i don't know that i would i don't know that, that i mean i i wouldn't change it i couldn't change that book but like, yeah, I'm I'm glad I'm glad the dispossessed is around, and I, yeah, love her so little. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, like uh, as an anarchist, you know, ruthless critique of all that exists. You know, not critiquing utopia is actually the core conflict of the dispossessed. And yet, I know that. And anytime someone says anything critical of the dispossessed, I'm like, not my favorite book. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, golly, is this where I choose to? So, The Left Hand of Darkness, um, I'm gonna assume, have have you read it? Yeah. Great, great, great. Um, there, I I think that was, like, I read, like, you know, the Wizard of Earth Sea Cycle, and then I think I started reading The Left Hand of Darkness, because everyone recommended it to me, and, um, it's it's another book that is like there's at times not a lot going on, but there's a lot of details and there's a lot of like small things waiting in the details about like people's lives and stuff. And um, there's like a, there's this moment where I was reading it and I was like, I don't understand why Ursula Le Guin wrote this book. Like it's supposed to be a book about like, gender and about like a genderless society and like it's just you know everyone's de facto like heed and like all of this stuff i'm like this is not a society without gender this is like a hyper gendered society and then i you know after getting further in the book and like like realizing that's how you know that's how he's like seeing their society and that he's been unable to like see their society as genderless because he is so influenced by his own society, which is like hyper rooted in gender. I was like, Oh, we're seeing it from his perspective. That's why I feel so upset about this. (laughs) Yeah. Cause our narrator doesn't see the society as genderless. I, yeah, I had the same uh, problem reading it. And then I read an interview she gave where, you know, she talks, she talks about how maleness masculinity is the default gender in our society. And she, uh, she talks, I, I, 
you know, if I try and paraphrase her too much, I'm going to butcher it. But basically, the you know, at a default, you know, she is seen as an author, and then people learn she's a woman, and now she's a female author um, mm-hmm. in a way that, like, you know, her contemporaries, her colleagues, like, aren't labeled as male authors. Uh, author is by de- you know by default masculine. I mean, lots of things are this way. Um, lots of you know professions and other th- other things in our society, but being an author, that's the the example she gives, um, if I'm if I'm remembering this interview correctly, and that's why she made the narrator of the Left Hand of Darkness default to masculinity. Uh, which I you know once I read that, then I was like, yeah, you know, kind of same reaction, like oh now this is brilliant, now I'm not annoyed, yeah, um, or I'm yeah. less annoyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like it was it was like this like mini cataclysm in my brain where I was like, "Oh my god, she's a genius." I mean, I knew that already, but like, yeah. And then I also love the other, you know, kind of part of that book, which is the contrast between this like um, this monarchy and this other country that is starting to emerge as something more recognizable as like a modern state, and looking at like mm-hmm. what statehood means and like what actually defines like being a state that it's also like you know most people when they talk about left hand of darkness talk about the gender stuff for maybe for good reason like it's a really interesting part of the book but i just that always feels like an under discussed part of that plot to me um Mm -hmm. and maybe because then the dispossessed gets way more into you know statehood versus like anarchistic non-states and and things like that but yeah 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 golly okay could talk about ursula Lequin for a long time but i want to talk more about your story um that we're here that we're here to talk about today um um so there's there's a couple there's a couple like moments that i want to like kind of like like focus in on on your story um and uh one of them is you know it's just in these like fun little fun little details um the shifting names of the mountains. Um, I really appreciated this little like sidebar conversation or like monologue that's going on about like the, the, like, you know, who calls the mountains what, um, especially when mountain, you know, the, the names of mountains become like less like tied to like, uh, like nationalistic borders or like maps or things like that. Um, but I say that as someone who like like has spent a lot of time in a place where uh, mountains were communally renamed or like talked about in different ways because um, the names on the the maps were not useful for like the purposes of like what was happening. Um, and yeah, so it was it was just this really weird moment where I was like, I love a little nerdy map moment. Um, but I, I'm wondering if that if that's like a, kind of like a maybe similar similar thing in your experience with like these like colloquial named map like mountains or places or things within like ski world. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I was I was hoping we were going to get to talk about this part because uh, that was a part that I loved writing. So a little bit before, you know, maybe like a month or so before I started working on like the first version of this story, uh, I was working on a project that was looking at the names of mountains in Colorado and how they had changed um, and why, like who was, who was naming them, who are they were getting named after. And so that was something I wanted to, you know, 
that was very like front of my brain when I was writing this and I wanted to get into like, uh, what else could they be called? And, you know, there are like plenty of stories of mountains where, uh, like you were saying, the name, the official name is not in any kind of colloquial usage. Um, and names where like, or places where the official names are in the process of being changed, uh, by, as you know, the result of like community outcry of like places where like the, you know, the mountain is named after someone who carried out, um, a massacre as part of like, you know, the project of you of the colonization of, uh, the United States. And, uh, so I, you know, very much want to think about like, you know, right now these names are set in stone, uh, so to speak, because of, you know, the power of, of the like political power of the United States and, you know, who makes the maps and who labels the maps. And also because they are effectively private property. Um, there are, you know, like the ski companies or the, the singular ski company that owns all of the lifts and issues passes even to hike on the mountains. So, you know, they also get to essentially you control what people call them. And when those two forces go away, uh, that opens up a lot of possibilities. And there's no real reason that there should be an agreement of what to call them. Uh, and so mm-hmm. um, I wanted to think about like, what else, you know, what else might people call them? And I enjoyed playing around with like kind of the idea of the more like politically radical factions, um, naming them after revolutionary figures in, you know, kind of an inversion of a lot of mountains being named after colonial figures. Um, Mm. and also playing with kind of some of the weird fun or interesting, at least subcultures that kind of exist around that area. Like, um, folks who really love Hunter Thompson, who lived, you know, right around there for a good chunk of his life, or at least his like later life. And also the fact that, you know, like if, if I were to live in this sort of situation, um, I'd probably do what Kate does and just keep calling them the names that I had called them growing up. Uh, you know, cause for, for all the critiques of like the origins of those names, that's, you know, sort of what they've always, uh, been to me. But so it, it was nevertheless like a fun, um, I don't know, thought experiment. Uh, but also I think part of why I had Kate stick with those names is because not one of the, no one of these factions uh, has like any kind of authoritative claim to, to the naming or renaming of them. Um, that's kind of the whole point, but also because um, I think a lot of the fiction I had been reading around that time sort of fell into sort of one or two uh, categories of either really, pedagogic i guess would be a way to turn um utopian fiction and you know maybe less pedagogic utopian fiction where like either you have a protagonist who is like kind of the perfect like revolutionary subject who is really ideologically gung-ho about everything and the the story is like walking you through how to be um, a good uh good radical or revolutionary subject yourself and Mm -hmm. even when i like agree with the broad ideological strokes of that it always just reads as a little bit grating um Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to avoid that and um the main difference i saw was you know whether you have a character who sort of like turns to camera and says this is the ideology or um versus having a character who maybe sees people acting these things out and you know has their own level of like buy-in or reservation um 
I mean, I don't know if it's like too nerdy to reference something written by uh, a member of like Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, but like the the thing that was like uh, the stuff that was top of my brain writing this was um, the Danielle Kane books and A Country of Ghosts, uh, mm-hmm. The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion. I was I was trying to remember the title of the first one there, but uh, you know where you have a protagonist who is very much a part of this this world, but isn't like walking you through step by step like here are the 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 principles of it all yeah i mean that is that is the fun that is the fun part about fiction and like world building and stuff like that is is trying to make it feel like a world that people live in and trying to make it feel like uh a world that exists beyond like the bounds of like what we're like seeing or like hyper focusing on for that moment Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting, like kind of how, how names, how names come to be. Um, and like the story behind those things, I'm obviously a little bit of like an etymology nerd and love to kind of like trace the, the names of things. Um, and like, and how those come to be, whether it's like the name of a mountain or whether it's the name of a, like a thing in, history or mythology like uh, me and my friend yesterday spent um like an hour sitting around trying to research um whether persephone who persephone is like uh um this usually thought of as this greek figure but probably actually originated in sicily in a world where like like nationalistic borders didn't really work the same way as they do now and so then we were like wait, but what, what Persephone is a Greek name? What would her name, how, what, if, what would people have called her in like pre-Roman Sicily? Like it was this whole web and we'll probably get to talk more about it in December. Um, but um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really fun to trace those things. Um, like the mountain ranges that I'm super familiar with, there's, there's the, the way that, we've kind of like talked about them is in these like very to me like interesting and like different ways of like there's the name on the map there's the name that people colloquially call it either because of like what it looks like what's there um or like some other weird idiom and that we don't understand um and then there's the indigenous names for those mountains that get referenced and talked about sometimes by some people. And then there's just other colloquial names that like, we'll meet someone and they'll be like, Oh yes, that mountain. And they'll give it a name. And we're like, what name did you give that? And they're like this. And we're like, why? And they're like, this is why. And we're like, is that what other people know this mountain as? And they're like, yes. And we're like, cool now we're gonna start calling this mountain something different because it's like part of this part of this weird shared colloquial language anyways that was a lot about mountains in this story um yeah well and I was, so one thing i do want to like point to at least briefly kind of from what you said is indigenous names for mountains which uh isn't something i i don't think i like throw into that part of the story and i was like laying in bed last night like wait 
was that a huge omission? Um, but when I was looking up the the names for these mountains and like their histories and such, there were a lot of cases where like I couldn't find an indigenous name, and you know, in in some cases, I don't know if that was um, because there, there there's not like written records of that because. Uh, a lot of the folks who used that name were killed, um, or if just because not every name had a mountain before colonizers came in and started rigorously mapping out every uh, acre of land. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there are like, there's a mountain near kind of on the uh, eastern side of the Rockies where there's an ongoing um, struggle over renaming it. And, you know, it, uh, it doesn't have like a pre-colonial name, um, but the the movement to rename it is pushing to give like the give over like the um, naming of it to uh, local indigenous communities, uh, which is you know. But like they are coming up with a new name for it, not or proposing a new name for it, not like reaching back to a historical name that. Um, as best as I understand the whole situation, you know, just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was maybe I should, I could have, or should have like pointed to something like that in this story. But I mean, one, it's none of those mountains that I reference. Uh, I was able to find any pre-existing indigenous name for, and, you know, I'm certainly not going to propose what like an, in, like an indigenous language name could be for those. Cause I'm not indigenous and I'm, you know, yeah 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 but i i want to at least like point to that is something missing from the story and not just like totally leave it uh unsaid or forgotten yeah yeah no thanks for thanks for bringing that in yeah i feel like it's rare that we get to like write something and then like like uh to a a lot of the people who are reading it like have like like oh yeah like i don't know if i did this in the best way or like, or maybe there's other ways or like, whatever. It's like, I don't know. That's why I love this podcast is just get, get to get to talk to authors about the choices that they make and, and um, how they craft this, these, these stories for us. Um, are there, I'm going to ask you kind of one more question about this and then we're going to move into probably the closing, closing up the, the episode. Um, are there other, were there other versions of this story when you were writing it and like what, what, if, if you feel like telling us like what, what did those other versions of the story look like? Um, I mean, you know, I don't think any of the versions are dramatically different. I think the, the only real differences between um, the story that I, you know, handed in for a class, the story that um, my comrade Pearson, uh, put in his scene and and the story that strangers is publishing is just you know bits of dialogue or bits of internal monologue that as i went back through i found like it doesn't read as naturally um you know it could be phrased better and you know just kind of those edits like there's not i don't think there's anything that i've changed that like dramatically affects the story you know i think like there were there were certainly plans i had for it or you know visions i had of it that changed in the process of writing like you know, when I first plotted it out, Kate and Jax were going to, you know, get to the, the top of the mountain in time to see the sunrise. And then I thought, I've never done that. I've, I've I'm never like, even in my, at my most enthusiastic, um, I'm never out of bed early enough 
to hike and still see the sunrise. It's like the one or two times I've tried doing something like that, the sun's up, you know, halfway through the hike and it's still beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. And that also just felt like it fit more with the story rather than having like the, you know, that absolutely like perfect ending of like, it's imperfect, but it's still beautiful. And that's, uh, you know, that is, that's the community that they're trying to build. That's the world that they're trying to survive in. Um, and it's, you know, also it's a sunset that's as colorful and beautiful as it is because there's a wildfire happening off somewhere, um, which was uh, also kind of just a, a snap decision as I was writing that scene. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, some of the most like colorfully beautiful f- sunsets I've seen have been because, you know, part of this world is burning. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's like a moral there. It's, it felt thematically appropriate and it felt like it fit with the time and place that this story is set in. And just kind of that idea of like, yep, I know intellectually that this is beautiful because something bad is happening, but I'm going to enjoy the beauty that I can in this moment with these people. Yeah. So that was, that was a scene that, you know, I never wrote a, I didn't, words on paper have a different version of that uh that existed but it was like in my plan for the story an entirely different scene that had like kind of maybe a more like unmediated beauty to it um Mm -hmm. and then as soon as i got to that point of the story i was like no it has to be completely different that's great i love i love that you held yourself to the realism of that for you know at least for you but for like i'm sure like a lot of other like like uh hikers or like outdoor enthusiasts or like you know what what, whatever people are going up on mountains for to like catch the sunrise um i'm sure some people do it uh but you know i'll probably never be one of them and uh you know that's the thing it's like every one of these characters or almost every one of these characters is you know some aspect of me um when i was writing it my boyfriend would like point out a line and joke and like be like oh is that your self-insert character i was like darling they all are (laughs) that's wonderful i love that um and i love um the it's it's funny that you mentioned the fire is like a like this kind of like last minute detail um because the the fire for me was this moment where um you know obviously the 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 it starts with this small moment of tension this small moment of conflict where you're where there's the possibility that bad things are going to happen to these characters. But then the fire really kind of like bookmarks that with like a, you know, obviously fires are these like are natural things that are, can be rather healthy for an environment um, depending on, you know, the nature of the fire and like things like that. Um, But, you know, regardless of a wildfire being good for the environment or habitats, um, they can still be bad for us, even if they're not connected to, climate collapse and it had this moment for me where um i enjoyed this nice little moment with these characters and the beauty that they were finding in it and suddenly was also very worried for them and yeah i don't know are there yeah yeah i'm just gonna i'm just gonna leave that there um, are there any questions about your story that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you before we move on? Um, 
I don't know if there were any, I mean, I think if there's anything that I didn't touch on that, like it's not, it's not even so much if, um, that I have a ton to say about it that I just don't know if I, how well I explained it or how well I like came off as this like little, it's one of those things that's like, it would make, I know it would make immediate sense to anyone who has lived in this area. And I don't know if it makes sense to anyone who hasn't, but the, the little digression I make about the little, like the roundabout in the road, um, between Snowmass and Aspen, um, as, as just like, because like so much of what this place is in the, in our present is defined by its class politics or, you know, its class structures. Cause like a very important detail that I'm sure I've mentioned already, but I have to reiterate is that I did not grow up in Snowmass or Aspen. I grew up 30 minutes down Valley, okay. um, which is a huge difference, right? Like, a yeah. lot of uh, people in Aspen, it's their like second or third home. They're you know immensely wealthy. Uh, it's and then where I grew up was you know where you live when you're commuting into into Snowmass and Aspen for work. And there's um, yeah there's that roundabout and like people will like very just openly like joke and laugh about like oh I'd never go below the circle and like I don't like. I don't know how much it comes off in the story, but that is just like something like we, you grow up with and it's like, you grow up with that, that awareness of that class distinction of like people who are just so open and blatant about the, like, Oh, I don't go anywhere where the pores are. And, uh, the, you know, the, like that little detail did have to be in the story because a lot of this story was also just like, I don't know, catharsis about the, that, like that tension between really loving where I grew up, where I grew up and loving like kind of the, the, the nature and the beauty of it and being so deeply angry at like, uh, the social structures that it's full of if, you know, maybe it felt important to have that in there for just the cathartic, like just to like complain about that thing, the, um, but also I think to contrast that with like, the way that folks are living in this story. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, is there any place on the internet where people can find you, where you would like to be found to either for more writing, other things that you do, et cetera? Uh, you know, not there, there really isn't it at this point. Um, hopefully I'll, you know, as I, as I write more, uh, it'll, I'll start creating something like that. But yeah, I'm not on, uh, you know, Twitter or threads or whatever, whatever the other, um, not Twitter apps are that are, are that folks are using now. But, uh, I'd say if, if people want to find out, find, um, I love when people you know, can't be found on the internet. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's so nice. Um, my, my boyfriend will be like, Hey, did you you know hear about this thing that people are angry about right now? I'm like, Nope. I'm unbothered. I'm looking at memes on Tumblr because I still have a Tumblr account uh, in, you know, years after that's relevant to anyone. Um, and, uh, but yeah, if folks want to, um, I guess, hear more about kind of my uh, writing, more about, you know, like my my work on, um, or my thoughts on solar punk and housing cooperatives and like building other ways of living um, here and now, uh, they can, you know, I was uh, on an episode of the podcast Coffee with Comrades back in January, uh, where I had a really lovely conversation with the host of that show, uh, Pearson, and we talked about you know, living uh, in a way where you're not uh, being 
you know, bled of like a third of your income by a landlord and living in ways where you're building, you know, non-hierarchical, queer inclusive community um, here and now of like a lot of how I thought about the way that people live, you know, in this story was really informed by the way I live uh, in a housing cooperative now. And um, yeah, we had, a, we had a really lovely chat. So yeah, uh, Coffee with Comrades, you know, one of like the early January episodes and um yeah, that's that's about all I have for for plugs. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, well, that brings us to our last little segment of the show, um, where I get to be a word nerd, um, and that is the word of the month. Um, so uh, I always like to I always like to find words that kind of at least like hopefully tie into the subject matter or the story or whatever. And, um, I did not, uh, I forgot about my own segment, but thankfully in my notes, there was a note about this thing that I wanted to ask you about in the story. So I get to do both now. Um, and I had a word prepared in the encyclopedic layers of my brain. Um, so, uh, one thing in the story that you mentioned was it's like, what it's like when they're traveling and there's this like discussion over like, like, uh, like being somewhere versus like the tension of traveling somewhere in an uncertain period of time. Um, or like when there's like things that can go wrong on the road. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, totally. Cool. Um, and it reminded me of this this word that I really love, which is: Do you know the origins of the word agoraphobia? I mean, I I don't. I I mean, obviously, I know the the phobia part of that. And then, um, is agoraphobia the the fear of of like open spaces? Is that or do I have that mixed up with like a different phobia? Yeah, no, no, no. It's it's um or <laughs> yes and no. Um, so we it's always fun to break words apart from like what we, how we think of them now versus like how they were coined versus like what their root words are. It's, it's all very interesting to me. Um, but so like agoraphobia, we have this idea of it being like in popular conceptions of like, when I think of people with agoraphobia, I think of people who can't go to public spaces, right? Like going to like the mall might really freak someone out. And that makes sense. Um, but weirdly, agoraphobia um, was coined in like the 1870s or something by this German psychologist. Um, but it's from these two Greek words, um, which is, you know, phobia, which is fear, um, and agora, which is market. Um, so, you know, literally, it means fear of the market, um, which makes a lot of sense when you think about people's fears of public spaces and you know, the terror of like being at the supermarket or being at the mall um, or places like that. But interestingly, um, that's not what agoraphobia refers to. Um, what it refers to is crossing in bet- from one known place to another known place. And it is the space in between that is being talked about with like the the uh, the fear. So it's like, it's less of like the fear of the market and more of the fear of having to travel to the market. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it, it makes sense to me why a, you know, why a German psychiatrist coined this word, because there's so many terrifying stories 
in like German like history and folklore about the dark forest that you had to travel through to get to the market. And also all of those stories exist in Greece. So it's like it that it just seemed very perfect to me. I'm like, of of course, of course a German psychiatrist used a Greek <laughs> word to talk about like the fear of crossing in between these spaces. But um, Oh yeah, that makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah, that was that was also a fun little moment for me in your story where I was like, yeah, the fear of traveling, the fear of like having to like make this journey, like because there's so much that can go wrong. And obviously that's true today, but it's like also true in these like post or during apocalyptic scenarios. So, yeah, because you're just you're stuck in this this non place. Uh, It doesn't have the same, you know, settled rules as like a well-defined space um and anything can happen you know it's uh it's like how when you're you're on the bus or on the train folks will behave in in ways that you would never uh never expect kind of in any place off of the bus or the train and it is just like this sort of yeah totally unbounded like it being in transit feels just like this totally unbounded kind of uh status yeah yeah and it is i know it's like weird because we have all of these you know representations of it in you know apocalypse media or speculative media is like it is people really dwell on like the fear of needing to move in between spaces and yeah i don't know i don't really have anything more meaningful to say about that just that it's a thing it's a thing yeah that that we dwell on because it's it's scary or but it doesn't have to be yeah it's it's a perfect yeah perfect word of the month for this story and uh also it's definitely a word that uh a good friend of mine has explained to me before and uh hopefully they're not too uh annoyed with me that i uh get it get it quite right but well i think it's like that you know it's like words like the names of mountains they mean the things that they mean to us in those times where it's like Mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of etymology is like there's what the word meant when it was coined and there's what it means to people now and it and those things can exist separately and together you know so it's it's, i yeah i i I feel like i feel like the popular conception of agoraphobia is like fear of the literal market which let's be real we all experienced that in 2020 in a really visceral way and still do currently oh uh, yes absolutely grocery shopping is uh maybe one of my least favorite chore activities yeah um cool well that is about all the time that we have today thank you so much again for coming on the show and thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure wonderful yeah and we will look forward to seeing seeing more more writing from you in the future thanks so much Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell someone about it. Also, you can rate and review and like and subscribe or do whatever the algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. But also just tell people about it. It's the main way that people hear about the show and honestly one of the best ways to support it. However, if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity, consider supporting the show financially by subscribing to our Patreon. 
If you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, we will mail to you a zine version of the pieces that you hear here every month, anywhere in the world. You can also get access to an archive of Old Strangers content, as well as discounts on things like t-shirts and books we publish. Find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. Our theme music is by Margaret Kiljoy, our zine layout is by Cassandra, and thanks to the lovely mountain goblins that mail out our feature every month. That's all my plugs, except for a very special series of shout-outs to these wonderful people who have helped make this podcast, as well as so many other projects possible. Thank you, Marm, Carson, Lord Harkin, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben-Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Hans, Oxalus, Janice and Odell, Paige, Ali, Papruna, Milica, Boys and Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and the infamous Haas the Dog, which is Haas the Dog, not Haas the Dog, as has been causing some confusion um, on the internet lately. Uh, thanks so much for all your support. It's really allowed us to do everything that you've seen us doing over the past two years, and it's just been delightful. And thank you so much, everyone, who came and said hi at the Seattle Anarchist Book Fair this past weekend. It was delightful to meet a lot of people who listened to the show. Um, so thank, thanks, y'all. And sorry if I was weird and awkward and shy. I don't know how to socialize. And lastly, a lot of these features on the podcast come from listeners like you. So if you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it. Next month, we have another piece of short fiction set during a collapse scenario. Stay well. We hope you come back. <laughs>